The coronavirus pandemic is raging as intensely as ever in many parts of the globe, but the U.S. government is hoarding vaccine doses and prolonging the suffering in defense of Big Pharma's profits. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's April 27th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Walter Smolarek and our host, Brian Becker. Brian, let's talk a little bit about what's coming up this week. This week, we have, in addition to today's show and our segment tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf, on Thursday in The Real Story, we're going to be starting a series on China's foreign policy. We're going to be marching through the decades with Professor Ken Hammond, who's a China expert. We're going to look at China's foreign policy as it evolved during the 1950s, shortly after the Chinese Revolution, during the period when China and the Soviet Union constituted the central anchor of a world socialist bloc. Then we're going to talk about the 1960s, where China and the Soviet Union, that alliance phrase. And finally, in the 1970s, where the United States, preying on the division between the two socialist giants, creates a de facto relationship or alliance with the People's Republic of China, and at the same time, nurturing a relationship, at least in the early 70s, with the Soviet Union, using the old colonial tactic of divide and conquer. But Thursday, we're going to talk about the 1950s, really an important decade shaping world politics, the beginning of what was called the Cold War. But of course, for the Koreans, there was nothing cold about it. Four million Koreans died. That was just nine months after the Chinese Revolution. Anyway, we're very excited about the Thursday segment and the series that follows a deep dive about China's foreign policy. A lot of times Americans think, well, what's going on with U.S. foreign policy? Well, that's important, but we need to also look at the foreign policy decisions and calculations of others, especially those who are the targets of the United States foreign policy. So we're excited that we will be dealing with China's foreign policy from 1949 all the way up to 2021 over a series of upcoming episodes. Well, Nicole, that's what's coming up the rest of this week, but let's get started with some of the big stories for today. Let's talk about what might be called COVID vaccine imperialism, You know, when we think about imperialism, we think about big countries or powerful countries invading weaker countries. We think about the United States invading the Philippines or going to war in Vietnam or the British dominating India. We think about the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, the war that crushed the government in Panama. We think about war usually when we think about imperialism. But imperialism has so many other dimensions to it in terms of the subjugation and domination 
by more powerful nations, by the most advanced, so-called advanced capitalist countries. But we see a big manifestation of imperialism, even in the delivery of healthcare services globally. And nothing could be more evident than what's happened with the delivery of COVID vaccines. Let's talk about that. So as of right now, the United States has vaccinated a good number of people. I believe it's over 40% now have at least one shot, which is great. I mean, this is a very, very positive thing. The part that gets extremely disgusting, frankly, extremely disgusting, is that, you know, there's 360 or so million people in the United States. And the number of vaccines that the U.S. has secured that is extra, more than the United States even needs for its population, is 550 million. So not only do they have the 360 or so million vaccines that they need for the population, there's 550 million more doses than are needed to cover the actual American public. In the meantime, I'm sure listeners have seen what's going on in India. India is just one example, but it is a horrific example where the COVID pandemic has gotten so intense in India that people are being asked to bring their own oxygen to the hospitals. Patients are dying before even being admitted into hospitals. It is both a reflection on the government in India, but it's also a reflection of the fact that India has so little vaccine has been able to do so little to actually vaccinate its population. And I think one of the things that the United States is not thinking about right now is that this is not only a humanitarian crisis, it's not only, you know, imperialism, as you lined out, Brian, but it's also going to come back to bite the United States because people around the world who are unvaccinated, who the virus will be able to multiply, change and create more and more variants that might not be able to be controlled by our current vaccines. Walter, let me ask you a question. I'm looking at a media outlet called the Indian Express. The headline is, explained, why does India need COVID-19 vaccine ingredients from the United States? The CEO of Serum Institute of India has urged President Joe Biden to lift the U.S. embargo on the export of vaccine raw materials. Now, Walter, you know, we talk about the embargo or blockade of Cuba. Cuba is a target of the United States. Cubans have never been forgiven for having a revolution that, you know, freed their country from U.S. domination in 1959. But India is not a targeted country. India is an ally or at least a nominal ally. Why is the U.S. embargoing the export of raw materials needed to ramp up production for a COVID vaccine? It is absolutely disgusting what's going on. I mean, the situation in India is so dire. I mean, over 3,000 people are dying every single day. The public health infrastructure is being pushed to its absolute limit. Oxygen is an extremely short supply. I mean, it's reminiscent of you know the worst scenes that we saw at the very onset of the pandemic. That's going on right now. And the government of India has also historically underinvested in the country's public health. For instance, I'm looking at an article here from a website called NewsClick. You can check it out, newsclick.in. It's titled Nationalized Vaccine Production in National Interest. It points out that while most countries that are at the same level of development as India spend about 2.5% of their GDP on public health, in India, under the right-wing Modi government, it's about 1%. So yeah, situation is definitely at crisis levels here. And what one would expect from just a basic 
position of human solidarity and compassion, especially when you consider, as you pointed out, that the United States has friendly relations with India, that the United States would take emergency action to help alleviate this situation. Now, today they said, okay, we are going to divert our own supplies of coronavirus vaccine raw materials to India. They're doing it through this sort of convoluted way. That's because there's been so much public pressure. I mean, this is a huge scandal now. I mean, up until today, they've been embargoing these materials, right? Yeah, that's right. So this truly outrageous decision was made in order to, one, deepen the hoarding, essentially, of vaccine and vaccine materials that the United States has. The U.S. government has stockpiled far more doses of vaccine than would be needed to get the United States to so-called herd immunity. That's part of their strategy. They just want to make sure that they have tons and tons and tons of vaccines because they'd rather be in that very powerful position. And the other reason is to protect the profits of the pharmaceutical industry. Another thing that is desperately needed is for the United States government to issue temporary patent waivers to countries that are struggling to acquire doses of the vaccine because they're in such short supply because of all this hoarding. If the intellectual property rights of the big pharmaceutical giants are put to the side for just even this moment of crisis, that could allow many countries to produce their own doses of the vaccine and begin to alleviate the kind of extreme vaccine inequality we've seen in the world. But that too would be unacceptable to the United States, or at least unacceptable to do in a blanket way, because of their true loyalty, which is to these big corporate giants that get rich off of the suffering of other people around the world and in the United States who are sick. I just want to build on that briefly, Brian, because what Walter's saying is really important. And I think the other tactic that the United States government is taking is after all of this intense pressure, you know, globally against the U.S. saying you guys have so much vaccine, this is completely unethical. Biden has now decided that he intends to send up to 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to India and to other countries. And I want to unpack that sentence a little bit. So first of all, intense, when you look at the actual plans that you know, might come to fruition, it'll be in batches. So it won't be all at once, even though this is a dire crisis. Secondly, AstraZeneca vaccine isn't even approved in the United States. It's not even approved for use. So the fact that lots of other countries have approved it is completely ridiculous. And thirdly, 60 million doses, when again, we have contracts for 550 million additional doses, is a drop in the bucket, especially given the dire need in India and many other places. But The reason that I think this is clearly a distraction to make the United States look like they're succumbing to pressure and look like they're doing something, on a conference call with reporters yesterday, senior officials in the Biden administration, they were talking a lot about these 60 million doses, but they would not address any questions about the patent waivers on vaccines developed by Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna, as one example, took a lot of government funding, a lot of our taxpayer money to develop this vaccine. But even more importantly, the science behind the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, the RNA vaccine, was developed through the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, a government agency for the past few decades. And of course, all of the other types, the older types of vaccines have been developed all around the globe by, you know, scientist after scientist that builds on each other's science and technology. So the fact that there are these patent waivers for this very specific vaccine is really complete nonsense when you think about it. Like this kind of technology really builds on each other. It's all dependent on 
each other on different countries, on different scientists. This is just really adding insult to injury here. You know, one of the reasons there's been a prohibition on sending vaccine raw materials outside the United States was the U.S., when it was trying to gear up for production of the vaccine during the Trump administration, the U.S. invoked the U.S. Defense Production Act. And a lot of people were demanding that Trump do just that. This act, the U.S. Defense Production Act, was developed in 1950. It was originally passed to help ensure supplies and equipment during the Korean War. Today, the scope of the act you know, extends far beyond America's military to cover natural hazards, terrorist attacks, and other emergencies. The act empowers the President of the United States to order domestic businesses and corporations to prioritize federal contracts in such events as these kind of emergencies. That's an important part of this, Walter, because one might not realize that India, except for the embargo on raw materials, well, it's not only that, it's also the Indian government's mismanagement and its own economic and political orientation. But India is set up to actually produce a lot of vaccines. The Serum Institute of India, which I mentioned a minute or two ago, it is the world's largest vaccine maker. And it had, as of last September 2020, an agreement to manufacture 1 billion doses of coronavirus vaccine being developed by scientists at the University of Oxford, UK, the UK pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. Anyway, let's just talk about that if we could. Oh, yeah, I think that's an extremely important point. Yeah, I mean, the Serum Institute was producing 2.4 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine every single day, every single day. And I mean, it's such an extreme irony of the global capitalist economy that the places where so much of the world's wealth, so many of the goods, the commodities that people need and want are actually physically produced, are assembled, or where the raw materials to produce and assemble them are extracted, receive almost none of the end product when you compare it to the advanced capitalist countries, the imperialist countries in North America and Western Europe. It's completely ridiculous, even from the perspective of the overall health of that same global capitalist economy. Because, you know, if you want to restart your supply chain and your supply chain is global, necessarily you have an interest in the pandemic being contained on a global level. And you know what? People travel from country to country. Coronavirus can still spread. Coronavirus can mutate. So it really is actually in the interests of the stability of the world capitalist economy for everybody to be vaccinated. But capitalism as a system incentivizes this type of extremely, you know, ludicrously narrow thinking where the intellectual property rights of the pharmaceutical companies come before all of that. So even though India produces a massive number of vaccines, you know, one of the biggest pharmaceutical manufacturing centers in the world, the people of India, the Indian working class, is denied the fruits of their national wealth, of their national productive capacity, essentially because of a piece of paper that says that, you know, the end product is the private property of a capitalist in the UK or in France or in the United States. One important thing that's happening, though, is that India actually is cutting back on their vaccine exports even though the Serum Institute is pushing back a little bit, the country is still deciding to keep 
hold of some of the vaccines that are being created within India. Again, that is increasing the pressure that especially the European Union is putting on India and the Serum Institute to fulfill their contracts. But I think it's incredibly important that India actually is starting to keep more and more of those vaccines for their own people. Yeah, it is important that emergency action has now been taken. But of course, that comes as the crisis completely explodes. There's other instances, too, I think that are important to point out of countries that are not rich banding together to try to get access in one way or another to coronavirus vaccine doses. The countries of ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of Our America, that's like Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, they're working together to administer vaccine doses and acquire vaccine doses. Cuba's producing their own. There's also a World Health Organization-led initiative called COVAX. But what we're seeing is that, unfortunately, these are falling short. The efforts are you know, extensive, they're in many cases heroic, but the stranglehold on the global supply chain that the U.S. and Western European and Japanese-based corporations have, it's just so extreme. And that's compounded, of course, by the Modi government and India's overall orientation of being very servile to the United States. And Walter, I think it's important the way you're framing that because, you know, I'm reading a New York Times article right now where the pushback is being framed as like very anti-India, where I'm looking at Olivier Waters, a professor of health policy at the London School of Economics. You know, he's quoted as saying, many countries around the world, poorer ones in particular, are counting on India. Vaccine nationalism hurts us all. But the real vaccine nationalists here are the West. I mean, it's not only AstraZeneca that could be distributed. Again, the United States could distribute all 550 million of its extra doses that it is just hanging on to just in case. And, you know, the one big barrier to that is how much technology, you know, and deep freezers and other things are necessary, especially for the two RNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. But again, that is because of, you know, the historic disinvestment that is happening globally and, you know, the debts that the United States really has by developing itself and really the colonial nature of the planet where the West has plundered these other countries that are the ones that are struggling right now and don't have the access to deep freezer space and all the other technology that they need to be able to implement these other vaccines. But I just want to point out, you know, all of this pressure isn't rightfully on India. It's actually on the West for doing all of this hoarding. Right. And when you think about vaccine nationalism, just think about the fact that the U.S. government refused to vaccinate asylum seekers for influenza or COVID initially, you know, again, the people who were illegally detained, not given their rights to apply for asylum, including children stuck together, imprisoned together just because they were seeking asylum and refusing to vaccinate them. And somehow, for some reason, that didn't create a huge outcry from the U.S. corporate media very easy to point fingers at other countries. And as a matter of fact, when you talk about nationalism, which of course, except for the nationalism of the oppressed seeking to be self-determining, to be free from their colonial or semi-colonial overlords, the nationalism of the major capitalist countries is the nationalism of its ruling class because they want the entire population to say, oh, we're all Americans. Well, yeah, but some of the Americans, you know, have billions of dollars and vast parts of the, quote, Americans can hardly make ends meet. But we're told to all unite behind the government, which is representing the interests of the capitalists. 
again, that kind of nationalism is always corrosive. It's almost always racist, especially in the case of the United States. When we come, Nicole, to the way the U.S. media, again, which pursues the same kind of capitalist slash nationalist agenda all the time and demonizes the countries and governments that the U.S. government or the Pentagon or the CIA are targeting, just think back to how the U.S. media treated the Sputnik V vaccine that Russia developed. I mean, the Soviet Union back in the day was, you know, a world leader in virology and vaccines. And many of that same staff where the next generation of that staff have been recreated in Russia once Russia got back on its feet. And they have a very, very effective program. But do you remember how the U.S. media was treating the release of Sputnik V? It was all snark. It was all derisive. It was mocking. It was like, this isn't going to work. The Russians are sloppy. The Russians are racing. The Russians are avoiding the protocols necessary in third stage clinical trials to guarantee not just efficacy, but safety. I was just looking before the show today at some of the old audio and video clips. The CNN, NBC, CBS, Fox News, liberal or conservative, all the corporate owned media were really, really throwing a lot of shade on Russia for the development of Sputnik 5. And it turns out Sputnik 5 works. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it was. The headlines were saying Russia was being dangerous and was miscalculating and was moving too quickly when it was the lead scientists who developed the vaccine who were taking the vaccine to show like this is safe. We don't have massive studies yet, but we have enough studies to show that this is safe and effective. And now earlier this year, the effectiveness rate that was tested in the phase three tests showed that it had a 91.6% effectiveness rate. But in real life, in actual real world assessments now, based on data from 3.8 million people, Russian scientists have now shown that the Sputnik V has a 97.6% effectiveness rate. 97.6%. This is so, so high. And, you know, again, when the Russian scientists were first putting out this vaccine, Sputnik V, and we're talking about it, one of the main points, of course, was that this is, again, like we've talked about, an old style viral vaccine, you know, something that's based on the science of tens of thousands of scientists who have worked over decades and decades. This is a very similar style of vaccine to many others. So the fact that they were able to come up with it very, very quickly is impressive, but it's not surprising. It's, you know, the way science is supposed to work. So the fact that, you know, the Western press really pilloried Russia and, you know, called them dangerous and doing the wrong thing here. You know, the Russians clearly had the right response in developing Sputnik V and getting it out there. And the one other thing I want to say about this vaccine is that 57 countries have authorized its use, 57 countries. The EU is waffling back and forth, clearly due to political maneuverings when the EU is you know, pressuring India, as we talked about, to get the AstraZeneca vaccine when they could be working with the Sputnik V. Brian, before you make your final comment, one really important thing that I wanted to read from a BBC article headlined, a Russian, quote, tool of soft power, this is writing about the Sputnik V, quote, Russia normally has to spend huge amounts of money on computer hacking and disinformation to spread discord and uncertainty in Europe. Now the vaccine appears to be achieving something similar without any effort, unquote. This is just the most disgusting 
spin on what is actually a huge accomplishment. Again, this is in the BBC and is portraying this vaccine as a tool of soft power instead of what it is, which is a life-saving technology. One of the reasons the Soviet Union went so far forward in terms of medicine and other science was that the Soviet Union, because it had a socialist planned economy, public ownership of the means of production, rather than competing capitalist corporations, it did away with intellectual property rights, meaning things did not have to be developed in secret. The lab scientists in one enterprise didn't have to keep secrets from the others because there was no profit motive. And as a consequence, Soviet science developed exponentially. It shocked the United States that a country, the Soviet Union at the time of the revolution in 1917, had an economy one-twelfth the size of the United States economy. And by 1970, it was the second biggest economy in the world. All those people who say, oh, socialism doesn't work and socialism doesn't do this. And so, well, the Soviet Union became the second biggest economy in the world with a planned economy, with the five-year plans. And just as China has exponential growth using different methods, granted, the Soviet Union had the same or similar sort of wildly high, and these are accurate, not made up statistics about economic growth in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and then it started to stagnate a little bit in the late 60s and 1970s. But it had amazing growth. And also the Soviets were the first into space with Sputnik, the original Sputnik. In 1957, the Soviets, in spite of the fact that they lost 27 million people in World War II and fought 80% of the German army doing it, in spite of that, when the U.S. threatened the Soviet Union with nuclear weapons, Soviet scientists were able to develop nuclear weapons, not that we liked them, but they were able to develop them quickly. And by the early 1950s, were developing nuclear weapons such that the United States would know that if the U.S. used nuclear weapons again, a few years after they used them in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the other side had the ability to reciprocate. That had an equalizing impact, and I'd say prevented the reuse of nuclear weapons afterwards. Walter, I mean, the Soviet Union had a different social system, a different economic system, and as a consequence, science and medicine were also organized differently. The fact that it made such strides showed that socialism, in spite of the hostile world environment, you know, it had very dynamic growth possibilities. Anyway, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Walter, people thought, and the left in the peace movement, oh, now there will be a peace dividend. Now the two countries can live in harmony and peace. We can demobilize the military. We can get rid of the military industrial complex. We don't have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year because we don't have a foreign adversary. The U.S. is the unipolar power of the world. But none of that happened. None of that happened. The United States didn't stop producing weapons, didn't bring back its military bases. On the contrary, it accelerated. It became more aggressive because it felt there was no restraint. And now Russia, after a, a long hiatus, got back on its feet. It started to grow again. It's a large, powerful country under Putin's leadership. Again, not a socialist government, but a government where the state used the state forces or the state power, the government power to rein in the oligarchs, to help rebuild the country, partly in a planned way, or maybe even more than partly. And as a consequence, even though Russia is not 
communist. It's not led by a communist party. It certainly is a target of the United States. And all of the former socialist countries of Eastern and Central Europe have been integrated into NATO or will be soon. And now the U.S. wants to integrate Ukraine, which was the second largest Soviet republic after Russia, into NATO, again, 20 plus years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Russians perceive this as a direct military threat, especially as the United States prepares for major power conflict. And now, again, there was such a big uproar in the U.S. media and by U.S. government officials because they said Russia is amassing large numbers of troops near Ukraine or large numbers of Russian troops are being amassed near NATO forces. That's also known as Russian troops are being amassed inside of Russia. Anyway, let's talk about that. And then I want to also talk about the full court press by the U.S. to prevent Germany from doing what Germany needs to do, which is to get gas through Nord Stream 2 from Russia. Yeah, well, I mean, I think to really get how aggressive a move this is, you know, you've got to have an appreciation for just what a huge threat to Russia's security Ukraine joining NATO would be, because I think that's really the prospect that's set into motion this series of events that's being portrayed, as you pointed out, in the corporate media, ridiculously as, you know, Russia preparing some kind of invasion for Ukraine. Uh, I mean, the primary purpose of NATO since its inception in the 1940s has been to fight Russia, to prepare for potentially World War III against Russia. I mean, at the conclusion of the Second World War, all of the imperialist countries that had been fighting each other in World War I and World War II, they decided that they would get together in a military alliance that would have as its purpose essentially coordinating the capitalist world's war against the Soviet Union, which they saw as impending. So as you pointed out, you know, the Cold War ended, NATO seemed obsolete, you know, the whole U.S. military industrial complex seemed even more absurd, but NATO trained its sights yet again on Russia, not a socialist country, but one that was independent and was powerful enough to defy, at least in certain circumstances, the wishes of Washington and the other Western countries. So the prospect of Ukraine becoming part of NATO, part of the reason that is so dangerous is that there's a provision in the NATO charter, it's called Article 5, that says that an attack against one is an attack against all. In other words, if one NATO country goes to war, all of the other NATO countries go to war as well. And so that doesn't necessarily even have to be triggered by a Russian invasion. It could be some kind of provocation. It could be a provocation staged by Ukraine or elements within Ukraine or some other political or military force. In other words, it sets up this tripwire that could result in all-out warfare between Russia and the West, essentially, all of the NATO powers. So if Ukraine joined that, prospect would become a lot more realistic. I mean, it would be like if Canada signed a mutual defense pact with China, right? Like the U.S. government would completely lose its mind if that happened. And that's, you know, understandably something that's extremely alarming to the Russian government. So what they decided to do was stage military drills, large-scale military drills to say like, hey, you should think twice about going down this path that could lead towards war. Like we have the capacity to defend ourselves. And as Brian pointed out, they were carrying out those drills, not in some third country, but inside of their own country, inside of Russia. And that was caricatured 
distorted to be like this Russian invasion force is massing along the border of Ukraine, when it was completely clear the whole time, explicitly stated, that these were military drills, and clearly they had the purpose of sending a warning signal, but were not in any way an imminent threat that the tanks were going to roll across the border to Ukraine, which is exactly what you would think was going to happen if you were watching CNN or MSNBC or any of the other corporate outlets. Let's just frame this. The U.S. government, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration are 100% putting extreme pressure on Germany, an ally of the United States, so that Germany won't allow, or companies that were building Nord Stream 2, a pipeline that brought natural gas from Russia to Germany and would make Germany more independent and not reliant on getting, say, liquefied natural gas from the United States from thousands of miles away. The U.S. is doing everything to impose huge sanctions on the companies. Now, again, Russia is not a communist country. It's not led by the Soviet Communist Party anymore. It's embraced integration into the world capitalist economy. It's not promoting world revolution, not doing any of those things. And Germany, which is close to Russia, needs natural resources, it needs energy, and it can get them at a far, far cheaper price, the natural gas, through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And the U.S. is doing everything to crush it. In fact, using every single possible pretext, including Navalny's hunger strike, as the reason to cripple or crush the Nord Stream 2. I'm looking at The Economist why Germany won't kill Nord Stream 2. Well, yeah, the Germans don't want to kill it because it's in Germany's interest. If they're going to get natural gas, why not get it where it's cheaper from a nearby source rather than you know thousands of miles away? But the headline goes on, Germany won't kill Nord Stream 2, but American sanctions might. I mean, this is all-out war, economic war, not just against Russia, but against U.S. allies like Germany. It is really remarkable. And for sure, this is in large part motivated by the economic interests of U.S. oil and gas corporations. I mean, especially since the United States became a net exporter of fossil fuels with the shale boom, the fracking boom. This has become a really important part of U.S. foreign policy. And it's overlapping with geopolitical interests in Europe. So I think that the pressure that's being placed on the German government may actually backfire, though, because, you know, the position of the United States in the world, while still, of course, extremely strong, considerable, I mean, it's the dominant empire, it's still not quite what it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, there are more options that other countries have in terms of who to do business with, who to have diplomatic cooperation with, who to have, you know, military relations with. In other words, you know, the United States isn't the only game in town anymore. And these types of, you know, extreme bullying tactics, imposing economic sanctions on ostensibly one of your closest allies in the world, like the relationship between Germany and the United States is. I mean, Germany hosts, for instance, tens of thousands of U.S. troops on their soil. And so for, for the United States to resort to the means of economic sanctions, I mean, that really says something. You know, a lot of the European countries may decide that their sort of junior partner status to the United States has kind of run its course. I mean, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, he talks about how important it is 
for the European Union to have what he calls strategic autonomy. And strategic autonomy is a euphemism for not doing 100% of everything that the United States tells you to do. And so I think if the U.S. keeps pushing in this manner around the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, a prospect like that, a strategic orientation like that might become a lot more attractive. Well, we will see about that. So far, the European capitalist junior partners of U.S. imperialism keep capitulating. Maybe because it's in their own backyard, there will be some shift. Again, this is gangster capitalism. U.S. capitalism is gangster capitalism. You do what we want. You buy from who we tell you to buy. And if you don't, we're going to break your knees. I mean, metaphorically speaking, we're going to break your knees. We're going to sanction your companies. One of the major Swiss companies, they're in the last stretch of building the pipeline has just gone out because they said they just couldn't survive economically in the face of all of the U.S. economic sanctions. So it's all out war. Nicole, time is running short, and we want to get to the Liberation News newsletter major stories. Walter's going to do that. Walter, of course, is the editor of Liberation News. By the way, we didn't mention, but Esther will be back with us next week. She had something else that prevented her from joining us this week. We have a lot of stories to talk about, more than we can actually discuss in this one episode. But I did want to get to so-called Skid Row in LA, that huge, vast expanse of you know the population of people, of homeless people. Let's just talk about what a federal judge ordered in Los Angeles and what the government is doing to resist an order that showed some degree of compassion for the people made homeless by US capitalism. Yeah, this is really incredible. There's a lawsuit about homelessness in LA, and essentially this judge has told the city, has told Los Angeles and has told LA County, they have to offer single women and unaccompanied children who are in Skid Row, they have to offer them a place to stay within 90 days, and they have to help families within 120 days. And then by October 18th this year, they have to offer every single person without a home on Skid Row housing or shelter. You know, the city and county, of course, will probably challenge this order. It requires the city to put a billion dollars into an escrow account to deal with this and to make sure people have housing. And, you know, I think one element of the ruling that's important, the ruling argues that L.A. city and county are wrongly focused on permanent housing at the expense of more temporary shelter, quote, knowing that massive development delays were likely while people died in the streets, unquote. So, you know, this is incredible given the huge amounts of homeless people around the country. Brian, you and I live here in Washington, D.C., where homeless encampments are popping up daily, where, you know, there are people who are barely on the brink of making it, who were, you know, hopping from family to family or hopping from place to place, but who are just setting up tents at this point because things are getting so bad. And then here across the country, we're seeing a judge actually require what is so common sense that people who don't have homes be offered homes, especially in a wealthy city like Los Angeles, where there is so much wealth. You know, there's Hollywood is sitting right there with billionaires, millionaires sitting right across the street. Same thing in Washington, D.C. There's a little bit fewer than 10,000 people who don't have homes here in Washington, D.C. And there are more than 10,000 vacant units. And the only reason that they are vacant is because the developers who built them, the developers you know, that were in some cases financed by the city to build them, do not want to rent them at anything less than an exorbitant rate. Yeah, we're going to keep following that story. 
Walter, let's go to Liberation News. Liberationnews.org, as always, check it out. Click on sign up for Liberation's newsletter at the very top. We're going to be updating that site every day with the breaking news of the day, as well as reports from across the country about issues, actions, mobilizations that you won't find in the mainstream media. One article from this week that relates to the conversation we had at the beginning of the show, I highly recommend it. It's titled Vaccine Apartheid, U.S. Puts World at Risk for Big Pharma Profits. If you want to learn some more facts related to the vaccine apartheid situation in the world that's causing so much suffering and death, check out this article, Vaccine Apartheid, U.S. Puts World at Risk for Big Pharma Profits. Another article I highly recommend, it's titled Chad in Turmoil After President's Death, Who Was Idris Deby? Idris Deby, the longtime dictator of Chad, ruled the country for 30 years as a loyal servant of French and U.S. imperialism, one of the major U.S. and French military operations going on in Africa was headquartered out of Chad's capital as a consequence of his regime's alliances. He died. Apparently, he died in battle fighting rebels a week ago. Now the country is in a situation of political crisis where a military council has taken over the country, declared that they're going to rule for the next year and a half. Lots of open questions there, and you can get the background information by checking out this article, Chad in Turmoil After President's Death, Who Was Idris Deby? Final article I want to recommend, titled, They Received Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, Now They Might Have to Pay It Back. This article interviews people who received this very vital unemployment relief program that was initiated at the beginning of last year, pandemic unemployment assistance. But many, many people who received benefits under this program are now at risk of having to pay it back because of reporting requirements. Check that out. Check out everything that we've posted to liberationnews.org and sign up for a newsletter at the top. All right, we are going to leave it there. Again, everyone, thank you for joining our program. If you like this show, if you rely on it, be sure to go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Subscribe to our show. We can't do this without the support of people who like or rely on the show. We'll be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf. We're going to talk again a little bit more about Nord Stream 2 and the impact of U.S foreign policy on capitalism and the relations between the European capitalists and U.S. capitalism. And then, as I said, on Thursday, we start our series where we're going to take a deep dive, look at the different stages and phases of the foreign policy of the People's Republic of China. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.